0: Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse communities. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer.
1: And I am Nicole Kabilis. In our last episode, we talked about the link between autism and phobias. We talked about phobias as a whole. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the link specifically between autism and and emetophobia. Uh, Some people say emetophobia, some people say emetophobia. Uh, but it all means the same thing, which is the fear of vomiting. This is a phobia that I've dealt with my entire life, and I definitely think that my autism has played a role in my fear.
0: Okay, so in this episode, we're flipping our normal script a bit, and i am we're going to do like an interview style, because this topic is very personal to Nicole. I'm going to ask her questions related to her experience, and she's going to talk in detail about her phobia, how it started how it impacted her personal life and professional life, and what she's done to overcome it.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Before we start, I do want to give a trigger warning for anybody who is listening to this episode and does have a metaphobia. Now, I'm the type of person where I'm okay hearing, you know, verbal explanations about, you know, dealing with these experiences. Um, I definitely try to talk about my experiences without going into a ton of graphic detail. um, But I don't know what people's threshold is when it comes to discussing these things. Um, There are some people with emetophobia that get triggered by hearing the word vomit, throw up, puke, barf, all of that. Um, And there are some people who get triggered by, you know, hearing the stories. So Mm -hmm. I do want to give a trigger warning for those of you that um, do have con concern about that, um, that there will be some detailed conversations about the experience of vomiting, the cause uh, of what I felt were some traumatic experiences associated with vomiting that caused my emetophobia. Um, And I think that's sort of the extent of it. Um, But, you know, I just want to be mindful of our audience, Mm -hmm. um, that that's part of it. So, you know, watch and listen when you are comfortable being aware of those details.
0: That sounds good. Yeah. So, Nicole, why are we talking about this?
1: Um, Well, so the reason that I wanted to focus on this phobia specifically, as I said before, emetophobia is the fear of vomiting. And uh, we, later on in this video, we're going to list this really fantastic resource called emetophobia.co.uk. And what they say on their website is that, 0.1% 0.1% to 8.8% of the American population has emetophobia. Now, I have personally dealt with it, and I've made a lot of progress overcoming it. And from my perspective, autism and emetophobia are closely re- linked. However, I don't really hear people talking about it. There aren't mm-hmm. a ton of articles. There aren't a ton yeah. of you know YouTube videos Talking about it from an educational perspective, there are a lot of people who will share their story and things that work for them, um, but they're not really having a conversation about the direct link of Mm -hmm. why autism can reinforce an emetophobia specifically. Now, in our last episode, we did talk about why autism uh, increases the likelihood of developing a general phobia. Um, But again, to me, the link between autism and emetophobia specifically uh, is very obvious. So the reasons being that we people with autism have sensory challenges with food, which leads to picky eating. The vagus nerve um, causes a lot of problems with digestion. People with autism are highly prone to developing phobias due to being in a chronic state of anxiety and overwhelm. And there are very, you know, very few resources. I, I think in addition to not talking about autism and emetophobia, I don't think there are a lot of resources that talk about autism and phobias in general. Yeah, There's obviously more than this phobia specifically, but there isn't a lot of conversation about what can autistic people do specifically to get mm-hmm. support if they have a debilitating phobia. Right,
0: right. Okay, so let's begin. Um, how did your fear of vomiting start, Nicole?
1: So when I was about eight years old, I started getting chronic nosebleeds and these chronic nosebleeds lasted basically for eight years until I was 16. They would happen daily for up to two hours a day. um, And they would just happen randomly. We didn't know what the causes of the nosebleeds were. um, And when I also say randomly, the, the time of day didn't really matter. Now, I never got them at night, mm-hmm. but you know it wasn't like oh it always happened in the afternoon. Oh, it right. always happened in the morning. Um, we do. We lived in Colorado. We lived in the um, Denver suburbs, so we were maybe suspecting that the dry climate was part of the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, because of my autism diagnosis, my family grew up with a very holistic homeopathic lifestyle. I don't remember why, but I do remember that I was taking echinacea supplements. And so there was some suspicion from our holistic doctors that maybe the echinacea was causing the constant bleeding.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, now, in addition to not understanding why the nosebleeds were ca- you know, caused, they randomly stopped when I was 16. We don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, I would have nosebleeds very rarely, and they would last five to ten minutes. And I still live in Colorado, so yeah. I don't know why um, hmm. that that was a thing. Still now, that,
0: still, hang on the the uh, yeah. Just experiencing that just by itself must have led to some traumatic experiences, right? And some lingering experiences from that that whole um, experiences that you've.
1: Yeah, um, and I and I do think it was probably at its worst, probably under the age of 11. Um, you know, when I became a teenager, I had better coping tools of how to handle, you know, nosebleeds that lasted a long time. But, you know, I do feel like from age, I don't know, 12 to 16, I would have the frequent nosebleeds, but they certainly didn't last, you know up to two hours it would mm-hmm. maybe be like you know 30 yeah. minutes to an hour um, still, but that's still a i mean it is still a long time
2: yeah
1: um now ironically having this chronic experience i don't have a fear of blood or nosebleeds mm-hmm. um but i also didn't have a fear of vomiting prior to eight years old okay. um and so in therapy, I was thinking back to all the times that I had gotten sick prior to eight years old, and you know, I certainly did throw up. I'm not going to talk about the experiences sure. out of uh, sympathy for our viewers, mm-hmm. but what I will say is, like, you know, some of it was maybe eating too much junk food. Some of it was, yeah. um, you know, having the flu. Mm-hmm. I I never had anxiety. Uh, I remember just feeling, you know, this is a normal process. I'm going to just go through this. Had no awareness of, you know, what was going on. And I did feel very taken care of when I was sick. So I I definitely feel that these nosebleeds were the cause of my phobia. Um, So I started doing somatic therapy, not for my phobia. I mean... Yes and no. I mean, I started doing somatic therapy um primarily due to my issues with sensory overwhelm, but I was like, "You know, I also have a fear of vomiting. Let's tackle that too." And so what I was learning from doing somatic therapy work um was that there were a lot of sensory experiences that I had during these noseblades that were really similar to throwing up, mm-hmm. and then paired with the digestive and sensory struggles, that created messages. That vomiting was scary. So it is fascinating mm. that you can develop a phobia about something and not have a direct experience with throwing up. Um, and, and again, like I I have no idea why I I didn't develop a fear of blood. Now, do I have a fear of throwing up blood? Yeah, but I, I also think sure. that's fairly normal. Yeah, I, don't, I think, think yeah. so. Um, yeah. Anyway, so so the things that we pinned down from these experiences with the nosebleeds of how they could be related to vomiting, um, there was just this constantly swallowing blood without control to stop, yep. which created scratchiness in my throat and nausea. And I, I actually, and this is another part of what made this experience so weird, I never threw up from consuming too much blood. Um, I knew that I would most likely throw up if I did swallow blood. So I don't know if that's where mm. the anxiety started, but there was no, there was no direct experience with throwing up from these, these frequent nosebleeds. Mm-hmm. Now, another um, aspect of that issue is, you know, when you have a nosebleed, there's two ways that you can address it. You can either bend forward right. and, you know, have, have the blood come out of your nose or you tilt your head back right. and blood goes down your throat. Well, right. I hated the constant swallowing. Yeah, um, for
2: sure.
1: You know, and I actually remember, I don't think this was during the period of the continuous nose blades, but I do remember getting a nosebleed in preschool.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, of course I freaked out. And sure. I had a teacher that, that took me into a, a closet in the classroom i'm sure it was i don't know a para you know it wasn't the main teacher it was some yeah. assistant and i kept insisting like i want to put my head forward and this mm. teacher kept shoving my head back yeah to make you know and and it and it put me in more distress because i yeah, yeah. you know i don't think people realize that when you're bleeding and you're laying on your back yeah. that's a very vulnerable position for a small child mm-hmm. um From the child's perspective, it makes them feel powerless. It makes them Mm -hmm. feel like they don't have autonomy to move, whether that be, you know, a fight or flight response. And, um, you know, and if the child feels like there's a certain thing that they need that they know they need to do to address the issue, if the adult is physically manhandling the child Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, to get them to do it the right way, um, that's really traumatizing. Right. And I have read a lot of testimonies from people with autism where there's been a lot of physical force being mm. used against them to do a certain behavior correctly. And that's right. just not the way to do it. Right. Right. So, you know, I just want to put that out there. Um, so another issue that I had is when you're little, and, and you can't breathe out of a certain orifice for a long period of time, which in my Mm -hmm. case was up to two hours. Mm -hmm. Um, that's scary. That's uncomfortable. Um, you know, when you are constantly breathing out of your mouth and sometimes you're not breathing out of your mouth because you know, you're continuously swallowing blood, even if you are tilting your head forward. Um, you know, that for, That's going to create a lot of anxiety for a small child. But then, if you have autism and you have an anxiety disorder, Mm -hmm. that compounds. You know, they're
0: all all going to merge together. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Um, And I think that there was discomfort of like pinching my nose, and then the blood clots in my nose, and then there's the, you know, having to exert so much pressure from my hands for two hours just to get it to stop. I mean, that was that was really hard now in addition this is this is fairly graphic um when you tilt your head forward um when you have a nosebleed for a long period of time blood starts coming out of your eyes because Mm -hmm. the the blood in your nose is building up to Mm -hmm. the point where it has to go somewhere so it either goes down your throat or it comes out of your eyeballs so Mm -hmm. imagine you're autistic you have an anxiety disorder Right. You you have uncontrollably bad breathing out, uh, bleeding out of your mm-hmm. nose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you have this parent that's like, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And all of a sudden, blood starts coming out of your eyes. Yeah. Now, it wasn't like a lot of blood, but, you know, right, like right. my eyesight starts to get blurry. You look in the mirror, there's little, little bits of like watered down blood coming out of your eyes. Well,
0: sure.
1: that's that... a recipe for a panic attack
0: that's trauma yeah
1: oh absolutely um and then you know over time you get these blood clots now when you when you have a nosebleed for as long as i do now you get multiple blood clots and they're massive you know mm. if you have a blood clot from a nosebleed that's like 5 to 10 minutes it's a little guy but mm. like these blood clots were so big and you could, you know, and I could feel them. And so it created right, like right. this sensory discomfort. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could touch them and I didn't yep. like the feeling of touching them. I didn't like that right. it would um, block my airway. And mm-hmm. and I would get terrified of like, what is going to happen to me when I swallow it? Right. Um, because clearly this, you know, I already know that loose blood, loose liquidy blood that's certainly not going to be good for my stomach. So what's a clot oh. going to do? Right. Um, and so then I would constantly blow the blood clot out when it's not ready to come out. So then the bleeding would continue. So that's mm-hmm. why these nosebleeds would last so long. Yeah. Um, and so then, you know, then I'm in crisis because, you, you know, here I am thinking if I blow it out, it'll be over. But mm-hmm. then it, and then the cycle starts all over again. So yep. then I'm panicking and crying, and then I'm frustrated. My mom's frustrated because she's like, You can't blow the nose, the blood clot out. Because so it's trying it, to heal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it, it just became this like awful, endless cycle. So then um, the other alternative, if you don't blow the blood clot out, is then it goes into the back of your throat. Right. And you have two choices you either swallow it or you cough it up. Right. You can only imagine how both of those alternatives trigger a fear of vomiting. Sure. Um, and, you know, I mean, even if you cough it up, I mean, it's like it's this gross yeah. it's thing not sitting in your mouth. It's gross mm-hmm. when it goes down your throat. So, you know, so then, you know, then I'm panicking because... Oh my God, am I going to throw up because I felt this thing on my mouth and mm-hmm. and now I see what it looks like, you know, so there are all these thoughts in my head, but then if I swallow it now I'm panicking, mm-hmm. what's going to happen if, you know, I swallow the blood clot, am I, am I going to throw up? And this happened over and over and over because, you know, I would, it just wouldn't stop bleeding. Yeah. Um. You know, so I mean, as as frustrating as it was on everybody's end that I would just blow the blood clot out. I mean, I would much rather do that than cough it up or or swallow it. Right. But the hard part at such a young age is not knowing the sweet spot of when to blow the blood clot out. You know, sure.
0: Sure. And, You're a young child and all this is happening. And you really. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That. So I remember like, you know, the way that we coped with it is you know i'd sit in my parents bathroom my mom would turn on the tv which didn't really do anything because my head was tilted down and i couldn't see the tv but i could hear it yeah so i'd i'd watch you know an episode of a of a cartoon show so i assume 30 minutes maybe would be enough for the blood clot to heal mm-hmm. then i would blow it out process would start all over again so mm-hmm. so Putting on top of all of this, you have perseveration, low frustration tolerance. It, yep. it just, it sucked. Mm-hmm. It, it really sucked. Um, so the summary of why this was so traumatic is when a child experiences bleeding through more than one body part and can't breathe for a long period of time, and they don't understand why they're bleeding right, exactly. for a long period of time, because you know when you're little, you assume you're dying and what's what what was hard on my mom is like well she knows i'm going to be fine but right. i don't know um but i i did start getting perspective by about 12 to 16 where i was like oh i just need to be patient yes uh i just did not have good emotional coping tools at that age to deal with it but that is totally understandable.
0: Yeah, not and, many children have coping skills at that. Yeah,
1: age. and and weirdly enough, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not doubting my parents, but I don't have any memory of going to a doctor, maybe a holistic doctor, but it just felt like we dealt with this for my whole childhood. Mm. And, and, it, and it was just a matter of coping with it. Um, you know, and these nosebleeds happened at school, They happened at home. Um, I remember, you know, getting a nosebleed in fifth grade and it lasted two hours. They had to send me home because Mm. I had swallowed so much blood and I, you know, I didn't feel good.
2: So it it was
1: creating problems, but I I don't understand why there wasn't medical intervention. Um, And I don't know, maybe they were just like, oh, it's Colorado, it's dry. We, you just cope with it. So, sure. you know, I'm not bringing that up to to rag on my parents. Um, I just find that an odd curiosity. I don't know. Hmm. Anyway, um, you know, okay. and as I've said earlier, you are have... highly sensitive. I mean, yeah. it it just all compounds, um, and and so I think that the issues of autism just escalate right. that. The, right. the suffering that you go through when you have chronic noseblades.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Were you going to ask a question? I no, I didn't nope,
0: You were you, you were going to go into um, somatic therapy?
1: Yeah. So so my somatic therapist, as I you know talked this through with her, and then we did body work. So I was kind of you know reliving some physiological memories of the, that time. She did feel like I got complex PTSD from yeah. having eight years of right. these long chronic nosebleeds. So so she was like, yeah, totally makes sense that you developed a phobia from this. Mm-hmm. Um, separate of the nosebleeds, I do remember that I had a really big problem with public bathrooms. Okay. Um, to the point, which I, I'm sure every parent of a young child with autism can relate to, I mean, I would, I guess sometimes I would choose to pee myself publicly because Mm. not that it was a choice. It was never a choice, but like, you know, I'm seven years old in an elementary school peeing my pants because I don't want to use the public bathrooms, but Mm. I don't have a concept at that age that like, I can't make it the entire day without going to the bathroom. Um, And so... You know there are just so many issues with it there's sights and smells i remember i was terrified of automatic flushing toilets Mm. um you know for those of you that that don't have sensory struggles automatic flushing toilets are a very aggressive sounding thing and it's very yeah yeah, it's very scary to somebody they're they're loud the water surges in aggressively you're mm. doing your business and all of a sudden the toilet gets activated and
2: you mm-hmm. feel it
1: all underneath you as you're sitting on the toilet. So, right. um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't know if there's a direct correlation of that, you know, causing my fear of vomiting, but I think that they're connected. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and and i will also add this too um when i was 11 so we had a uh, a camping trip um you know the school planned like a a fifth grade camping trip i didn't go to the bathroom for 3 days because i refused to wow. you know do my business in nature and it was miserable <laughs> Um,
0: I can can understand that. And it was four
1: days. And by day three, I was like, I can't take it anymore. And, and I don't know if part of the issue was, I didn't know how to use the bathroom in nature, like
2: Mm -hmm. dig Mm -hmm. a
1: hole and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, like, I don't want people to see me. I don't want to be cold. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, there just comes a point where, you know the the distress your physiological distress outweighs your your fear yeah. so you just do it um but it caused a lot of health problems afterwards no kidding. um yeah, no i was kidding. i was like pretty significantly constipated afterwards and mm. i had um you know a little bit of bladder pain sure. um so yeah i mean it those those fears and phobias can be really intense and, and mm-hmm. the will of the mind is pretty strong, but that really takes a major toll on your body.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Okay, so you talked about um, developing the fear of vomiting um, and how that is connected to uh, the blood clotting, but the blood clotting ended at 16, you said, um, and then the the fear of vomiting started after that, or was there some overlap time?
1: Um. No, I mean I, I definitely think that my fear of vomiting started when I was eight.
0: No, oh, okay. Okay. So um, this this is building up then over time.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, now the the nosebleed stopping didn't stop the fear of vomiting. Right. And as I said before, um I I don't think at that young age there was a correlation. Like it's not like I knew at that age that you know, there was a cause and effect of the nose blades creating mm-hmm. that fear of vomiting. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember very distinctly in elementary school, and it was sort of like this foggy memory. It's not like this, like, I remember this traumatic thing happened. And then the day after that, I was just terrified of throwing up. But I remember the later years of elementary school was sort of the beginning of just having a very intense fear of myself throwing up, mm-hmm. of my peers throwing up Mm -hmm. around me, um, of you know, getting an illness that would be related to that. Um yeah, so I I think it wasn't until I was older that I was able to create that relationship. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I would say, um, you know, spoiler alert, I am better, but I'm not completely like overcome of emetophobia. So I'm I'm 32 And uh, you know, it started when I was eight. So, you know, it's it's been a lifelong fear of mine. So yeah, the nosebleeds the nosebleeds caused it, but the nosebleeds didn't alleviate the fear.
0: Right. Once they were gone.
1: Once they were gone, yeah.
0: Okay. So what was your motivation to overcome it?
1: Um, so I would say probably by freshman year of college was when I actively started doing work to overcome emetophobia. And, you know, prior to that, I would have severe anxiety about food poisoning, food with gross textures, getting sick, being around people that were sick. Now, I do want to clarify that people with autism struggle with gross textures and and certain certain tactile Mm -hmm. uh, smell, taste with food. I don't think every person with autism uh, reacts that way and immediately is like, oh, this thing's going to make me sick. Right. For me, it does. So so mm. my struggles with picky eating mainly had to do with if this thing uh, doesn't feel good in my mouth, is it going to make me feel sick? Um, you know, so as an example, um, if I eat a peach, you know, like sometimes you get like a peach or an apple that just kind of has a little bit of a bland, gritty texture. Mm-hmm. Now, if you eat that, you're not going to throw up. Right, right. What the thought process in the mind of a person with autism is if, if the food creates sor- any sort of sensory discomfort, there's a thought in the brain that says this uncomfortable texture is going to not make me feel good yeah and you know, that could lead to indigestion. It could lead to just the discomfort of chewing the food. Mm-hmm. so i think I think every person with autism gets that response, but it's not always associated with the fear of vomiting
2: yeah, for um
1: sure. and i and I will also clarify, even though I had that issue, it didn't significantly restrict um what I ate, okay, but I do think, like, if I know that. Somebody had gotten food poisoning from a certain restaurant. I'd be like, I don't want to eat there. Yeah, or definitely. I would have anxiety about eating food that looked like vomit, like soup. Mm, sure. Um, you know, so I think that that's where the picky eating showed up more. But okay. But the emetophobia didn't impact my diet. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel like I uh, overall ate fairly healthy. Mm-hmm. Um. But other than that, you know, I couldn't watch movies with people that threw up. Right. And and I and this is actually a really common thing for people with emetophobia. You categorize movies and T V shows as people who throw up and people who don't. Okay. And if they throw up, sure. That's it. You're done. Not, You're not, not watching, watching it.
2: it. I'm not watching
1: it. Um and, you know, I remember being a movie theaters and, you know, you don't know, it's not like you're going to research the movie. And even they don't, if you they do, don't it's have not, they're disclaimers not going to, they're not going to, yeah, they, you know? there's not a disclaimer. Could you imagine if they had disclaimers no, for movies yeah. for like all phobias? Um, yeah, that, that would, would be, that would no. be crazy.
2: Yeah.
1: But I mean, I remember like if somebody threw up, I, I mean, I would like scream and cover my ears and mm. my eyes or like. If sure. uh, if my parents saw that maybe a character looked like they were going to be sick, they were like, cover your ears like, you know, mm-hmm. so so there was always a there was always a very strong fear reaction. Um, and as I said before, I, I don't think that the phobia debilitated my quality of life or my ability to eat. You know, I still went to right. school. Mm-hmm. I still engaged in daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, I have heard other people with a you know, not leaving their house they'll develop anorexia um i actually read a story i don't know how this works but there was a girl who had emetophobia who like forced herself to throw up as a way to face the fear and then developed bulimia
0: yeah that's not
1: i don't know how that works but like i I don't know like Mm -hmm. a person with emetophobia in general like bulimia is never going to cross their mind yeah (laughs) unless they're like facing their fear. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, I would engage in the real world, but I would definitely have severe panic attacks about, mm-hmm. you know, anything related to vomiting. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: I, I definitely had perspective of how the phobia was going to negatively impact my life as an adult. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a primary motivator for overcoming the fear now, generally speaking, it really sucks to constantly be in a panic attack. You know, you just want to not be afraid of a flu going around, you know, your college, but you right. just are. It, it creates, I mean, if you think about uh, how afraid people were when COVID happened yes. and, you know, and, and COVID was a very serious thing people died from and sure. there was just this mass panic. And I remember, you know, being afraid of what's going to happen when I when I leave, mm-hmm. um, you know, before I was vaccinated. Um, there were just a constant fears. You know, you, you live your life walking on tiptoes. You know, right. you're afraid of how much food's going to be left over. You're afraid, what if that food goes bad and there's no food left? The toilet paper thing. Oh, uh, yeah. The, you... the run
0: on the, the for toilet paper. That was I thought that was interesting.
1: Yeah. Now, again, I, I do want to say those were legitimate fears. Those are not um, overreactions. The mm-hmm. only reason I bring it up is because when you have a fear, a phobia related mm-hmm. to germs, related to vomiting, that's what it feels like. You, you, there's something about the experience of throwing up for a person with emetophobia that makes it feel like it's going to create life or death suffering
0: yeah, no, that makes sense,
1: even if you logically know it won't do that. There's a part of your body that's just afraid. Right. So anyway, so, yeah. I, I hated living in that that state. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one of the things that that really motivated me to overcome the phobia was that I knew I wanted to be a parent. right? If I wanted to be a parent, I was most likely going to experience motion uh motion sick. Morning sickness. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't want my child to develop a fear of vomiting because of me. Uh, We talked about in our previous episode that sometimes kids develop phobias because the parent has a phobia and they're modeling it for the kid. Um, You know, I I remember I never dropped a a kid because of the fear that they would throw up on me, but there were a few close calls and uh, that really stuck with me. Mm. Um, I, I became afraid of holding babies because I didn't trust myself to, uh, react in a good way if a baby threw up on me or spit up or whatever. Yeah. Well, exactly. So like, I, I didn't want to, uh, I was afraid that if I dropped a kid and then that would cause like long-term brain damage, total fear of mine. I didn't, you know, you have to face, you're going to get thrown up on. If you have a child so that's something that you have to face
2: yeah
1: um and then the last thing was like you know i've heard testimony of like some parents who have a metaphobia they're just like they're not going to deal with it mm. or they get terrified of dealing with it and so th- that puts a lot of weight on the other parent if there is another parent in the picture to deal with it yeah and I just sort of got the feeling that I didn't want my child to feel abandoned or ashamed mm-hmm. of being sick because right. every time they needed nurturing um or care, i I ran away from them. Mm. So, so how
0: about um as you became a teacher, what was your experience <laughs> like?
1: So, I talked about this in our last episode. Um, being a teacher, I realized that I had to overcome my fear because it was affecting my classroom management. Now, I thought that if I could teach high school, I would never have to deal with anybody throwing up in my classroom, which that was not the case. Nope. Um, And so, yeah, teenagers get nauseous and sometimes throw up in your classroom. That never happened in my classroom, but I had students tell me fairly graphic stories of them throwing up in other people's classrooms. So I was yep. like, great, like, I'm never going to run away from it. Um, so what I did, uh, you know, my first year of teaching, I was very open about myself, I did tell my students that I had autism. Mm. And I told my students that I had a metaphobia, because the one thing I did not want is for kids to just well, I'm not feeling well, but maybe I'll get over it and yeah, then, I'll tough it and out then, in your class. Yeah, and then all of a sudden they're racing to the trash can to go throw up. It's like mm-hmm. if you know you're not feeling well, just leave. Yes. That was that was the mistake. Yes. Um <laughs>
0: What what? You mean students took advantage of that? Oh my
1: god, they totally took advantage of it. Uh mainly boys. Yes. Um so I mean, and like, you know, preteen to teenage boys you know, they they puff their cheeks out and they pretend to like jolt sure, forward. Sure, and, sure. and it's like, I know you're not sick, but but it bothered me that they mm. were teasing me, that they were testing yeah, yeah. my authority by right. like pretending to feel nauseous around me. And yeah. then I had some students who would pretend to be stomach sick and I'd be like, just go, just go. Well, right. they would pretend so that they could ditch my class. Free pass, so, Yeah, yeah basically. Um, now, now the problem about the kids that would pretend to, you know, get sick as a way to rouse me is then when they actually felt sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember I I volunteered at an uh, inner city youth center. And I had these preteen boys that were just like, you know, they were doing all of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm like, haha, very funny. I had a good sense of humor about it. But then one day, one of those boys actually was sick Mm -hmm. and came up to me and was like, okay, I'm not joking. I'm actually not feeling well. Well, I ran away. I like ran into another room and that (laughs) kid threw up in the hallway.
2: It's like that,
1: that really bothered me is like that whole, like, I'm not joking kind of thing. Yeah. It's just, it's just hard. Um, And so, um, I, the, the other issue, um, is I, I had a student who, now this was legit. She wasn't trying to get out of my classroom, but like every Mm. single morning she came to my classroom sick. Mm. She was complaining of nausea. And I was like, you know, well, go to the nurse. Like, you know, and she's like. But my mom doesn't want me to leave the classroom. And I'm like, you are not throwing up in my classroom. That's right. You know, so so she this went back and forth. So it's not that the nurse got angry at me, but the nurse would just constantly call me and be like, what are you noticing? And I and I'm like, Mm. she seems genuinely sick, like, but but it happened every single day. And so we didn't know if she was, you know, having anxiety, if she was trying to get an excuse to get out of the classroom. Well, we came to find out through her mom, she was taking her ADHD medication on an empty stomach.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And so that's kind of another issue of being a teacher is like a a good 75% of the times that kids throw up have to do with reasons where they're like, I'm going to do this. And I don't have a cause and effect of what happens. Right, right. You know, uh, I had a student who threw up in another teacher's classroom because she she was like, I'm going to cook my own eggs. And she undercooked her eggs. And it's like,
2: all right,
1: well, you know, hopefully you learned your lesson or, you know, I I had a mentor teacher who said he had a he had a classmate who, like, had a made a bet with his um, peers about like chugging glue. Like Mm. he, he consumed an entire bottle of Elmer's glue. Okay. And then got sick in the classroom. And, and you're just weird when you have emetophobia and, and kids throw up because of these dumb reasons. It's like, come on guys, like make better decisions. Yeah. exactly. Um, So, you know, so that, that was really hard. And then another, really, I don't know, hilarious and compromising story is I had a student who, you know, who was very close to me and they said, you know, oh, I also have emetophobia. I was mm. like, oh, cool. We have something in common. Well, there was this one day where I had a student in that same classroom, different student, who uh was nauseous. And mm. I, I could totally see something was wrong because the kid just kept putting his head on the desk uh you know and i went over to go talk to him and right before i talked to him i saw him texting his mom and he and he said i don't feel good come pick me up and he had like the the green face barf emoji so i'm like oh no so you know so i i kneel next to him i check on him and i say you know do you think you should go to the nurse and he goes no i think i'm just gonna stay here see if it gets better so you know me, with metaphobia, I'm like, why? <laughs> why do you want to tempt possibly <laughs> throwing up in front of all of your peers? And I don't want to deal with it. Right. You know, and usually when a kid throws up in your classroom, you got to do a room clear. It's super disruptive to the learning environment. Right. But what's even more disruptive is if you have a kid who throws up in your classroom and then another kid has a metaphobia, yep. has a panic attack. So here I am like darting my eyes between these two kids who are sitting opposite ends of the classroom. Right. And I'm like, does the emetophobia kid know that the other kid is sick? And, and it just like, and I'm like, how am I going to care for both students and my entire classroom at the right. same time? And so yourself. it just, yeah. So it just got to the point where I, I forced him to leave my classroom.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I was just like, you know, you're sick, just go to the nurse. Like, I'm I'm making you leave.
0: Right. Your mom can pick you up there. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: And so he left. I mean, you know, good. Good on those kids for wanting to be students and do the work and and uh, and tough it out. But honestly, like putting aside, you know, vomiting, like if if you are spending the whole class just laying your head on the table I mean, you're not productive. There's no reason for you to be in the classroom if you're right. not going to do any work because you're sick.
2: Exactly.
1: And why do you want to put your head on this hard, cold desk? Just go to the nurse's office.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, where you, yeah, where you so, have that
0: um, cold, hard bed to lie on.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so I was definitely seeing these correlations and I noticed that my high anxiety was impacting uh, my students. Yes. And, and the other funny thing too, is like, you know, I had some students that knew I had a metaphobia and if they were late to class, like, you know, I, I had a student once who was late and I said, you know, why were you late? And she goes, do you really want to know? And I'm like, maybe not. Do I want to know? <laughs> and I said, just go ahead and tell me. And she goes, well, I was throwing up and I'm like, all right, we're done. They're like, well, go why did you come to my classroom? Yeah. So I don't know. It's just like it's it's horrible. Like you will, no matter what grade you teach, you will have to deal with kids getting sick. Yes, and so it will happen. And so it it just was miserable for me. Yeah, and it was impacting. Like I did feel like in some cases I was being emotionally taken advantage of. So I was like, for sure, I I have to overcome this phobia. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think sense. you know when you have those moments of perspective of. I want a kid and I don't want the phobia to negatively impact my ability to have a child, or I want to right. be a teacher and I don't want the emetophobia to impact mm-hmm. my ability to be a good teacher. Mm-hmm. Those goals overpower the fear. It's what motivates you okay. to take those risks, make, make those steps. So okay. I do think it's really important for anybody um, who's trying to overcome a phobia to have that goal. Um, that overarching thing, and what I really liked about the goal of parenting is like I had so much time mm. to work on it, mm-hmm. um, you know. And I feel like, you know, being thirty-two, I'm about to start grad school. I'm giving myself about three years, uh, right when my grad program ends, mm-hmm. uh, for me to get ready to start planning for having a child. And I'm like, you know, three years. If you're really being proactive about working on your fear, y- you can make a lot of progress. Yeah. So I, I feel really optimistic that those goals uh, were really powerful for me to, to face my fears.
0: That's awesome. Okay, so let's transition for a bit. All right, so you knew you wanted to make a change. You knew, you had this goal in mind. Um, then you sought out therapy, right? Talk about a little bit what were the types of therapies that you did to overcome a Mm-hmm.
1: I talked about this in our last episode, I personally don't believe that there is a magical singular therapy that will work for overcoming emetophobia, um, or any type of phobia. And nor will that certain type of therapy universally work for everybody. A lot of people think that exposure therapy alone will do the trick. I don't Mm. personally think that's the case. The metaphor that I use to talk about overcoming a phobia, it's, it's really about chipping away at it. I look mm-hmm. at it as like um chiseling a sculpture mm. rather than um you know smashing a block of ice and then it shatters. Like it's not okay. an ins- it's not an instantaneous break.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's not an instantaneous epiphany. And the other part of it as well, kind of as I was talking about with the the noseblades, I had more capability of dealing with the chronic noseblades as I got older compared to when I was a child because I had more cognitive autonomy. I had a yes. a lot more maturity and perspective. Of these nosebleeds are not going to kill me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I can develop the patience and the window of tolerance to deal with not breathing through my nose. Mm. So I do think age certainly helps. Now mm-hmm. you know it, it depends. I mean I've I've read a lot of testimonies of adults who you know their phobia is extremely debilitating. I think for me, um, you know, even though I have a fear of vomiting, there are certain things that I've learned about vomiting that I'm able to register. The older I get, compared yes. to like none of those things would have made sense to me as a, a child. Right. And so um, I tried many different therapies. I, as I said, I've been actively working on my emetophobia since I was 19. Mm. So it's been about 13 years. Of, yeah. of really trying to tackle my phobia. And I do think that there's been progress. Um, and a, a phobia has a lot of triggers. And so the way that I look at it is each type of therapy tackles a certain issue related to the phobia. Mm. So it's not a matter of, wow, you've been working on this for 13 years and it, nothing's been working. Everything has been working, but on certain issues. Okay. So I've done talk therapy um, and I've done cognitive behavior therapy. I've done exposure therapy, mainly self-directed. There yeah. are a lot of really great resources online that kind of walk you through like a tiered way that you sure. can approach exposure therapy. I've done acupuncture. Mm. Uh, I've done energy healing like Reiki. I've mm-hmm. done somatic therapy, yoga and mindfulness. I've... um used emetophobia workbooks. I've even done past life regression therapy. Um, yeah, uh, which uh, past life regression therapy is not for everybody. I'm very yeah. into metaphysics and new age practices. So I was open to it. I learned a lot about, uh, myself and the experience of vomiting through that. So I, yeah. I've personally felt it was helpful but okay. it's not something that I would universally recommend because not yes. everybody ascribes to that. Right. Um, anyway, so I think all of the therapies work to some extent, as I said, to chip things away. Um. And they all helped for different reasons. Now, one thing that I want to clarify is in that time of having the phobia, did I ever throw up? Yeah, I did. Did vomiting Help me overcome the phobia. No. One perplexing thing that I noticed is if I was really badly nauseous, I wasn't afraid of vomiting. Um, I just sort of surrendered to feeling sick and I I went through the process and, you know, throwing up did feel good.
0: Sometimes Um, you just can't help it, right? Your body is saying this needs to come out. Yeah.
1: Well, and there are some people where they will get sick that way and they will have panic attacks. I think for me in those beginning stages, like I'm just like, I know what's going to happen. I surrender to the process. Uh, I handle it. And then I'm like, wow, you you did a really good job. Yeah. And then an hour goes by. I'm not even overthinking things. I'm not catastrophizing. There is no deliberate thought Mm. in my mind other than Wow, good job. You faced your fear and then mm. all of a sudden I'm in a panic attack.
0: Oh, okay. Interesting.
1: And I and I'm sitting there in my panic attack and I'm like, "Why are you having a panic attack? You weren't even afraid going mm. through that whole experience." So it really clicked for me in that moment that the actual experience of throwing up was not going to help me overcome my fear. Okay. Um and and I think that that's the misconception of phobias. Um going through that experience of interacting with the thing that you're afraid of. People assume just do it. You'll be fine. There's just something going on in your brain Mm -hmm. uh, that recognizes that there's a danger. Um, and so that's why phobias are so complicated to heal. Mm. And that's why, in my opinion, it it takes a lot of different perspectives and approaches to address it. And so I do feel like as I've gotten older, um, vomiting starts to scare me less and less mm-hmm. because I'm working on a lot of, uh, physiological healing, a lot of emotional, uh, cognitive healing, uh, so that if I do throw up, I'm not going to have a panic attack, um, right. because I'm healing those receptors in my nervous system that are firing off because it knows that, you know, there's a fight or flight trigger.
0: Okay. All right, so you went through all these different therapies. Um, what were your some of your biggest takeaways from the therapies, and which ones do you feel were most effective?
1: Yeah. um, you know, it's hard to say what I feel is most effective because everybody's different. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, i I feel like different types of therapies played an important role in different stages of my life. Um, for me, healing my emetophobia involved uh, mental healing, mm. spiritual healing, and physical healing. Mm. And each type of healing triggers a different type of therapeutic intervention. Okay. Um, so when I talk about the biggest takeaways, I'm not really talking about like, oh, I I got an epiphany from this therapy and other people should do it. Right. I think that the takeaways that I want to talk about are things That I want other people with emetophobia to know so that they get perspective of the validity of why it's scary. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, these are the the mindsets that you can have going into therapy that can help you heal your phobia. Mm -hmm. So um, particularly when I did past life regression therapy, what I learned was that there were previous times in history when vomiting was life-threatening. Mm. food conditions were very poor, uh, for certain classes of people. Mm -hmm. Um, vomiting was also used as a form of torture and you could die from it if you ingested poison like arsenic. Mm. Um, and so what that taught me is that it biologically made sense for me to be afraid of vomiting. And I think that, um, Some people do recommend past life regression work if you have a really strong phobia, because the belief with past life regression hypnosis is that um, a current life health issue could be a reflection of a past life suffering that's been unresolved. Hmm. And again, you know, past life regression work only really has power if you're open minded to the possibility of past lives. Exactly. So, you know, if you have a religious or spiritual belief that that's not a thing then past life and regression work is not going to be effective for This is not going to work for you.
2: for you. Yeah. But exactly.
1: I do feel like doing it uh, was very eye-opening. I do feel like it cleared a lot of uh, trauma. And like I said, I was able to kind of create those those connections. Then the other thing that I, that I realized is that um, society has evolved to a place where those life-threatening obstacles with vomiting are just not going to be there. Um, you know, food is highly regulated. Um, I wouldn't be tortured or killed by somebody, um, in an effort to make me sick. I mean, generally, you know, if, if people see you throw up, um, other than being grossed out, you know, people may be kind to you. They'll say, are you okay? Do you, Mm -hmm. do you need any support? Right. Um, so, you know, the likelihood of that happening, I'm not ruling it out. You know, some people are just very sadistic, um, and abusive. Right.
0: In a normal, but just setting.
1: Gener- generally speaking, mm-hmm. the likelihood of that happening to the average person with a metaphobia um, is is very low. And right. the other thing is, you know, you get a flu, you bounce back pretty quickly. Um, it, and if it if it does get really bad, hospitals are there to keep you safe. Right. And so having that perspective, it helped me to trust that I truly was safe if I was going to throw up. And that uh, I, we as a society are never going to go back to that, that time in history where vomiting was legitimately life-threatening.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And then there is a mindfulness component to a phobia and there is a somatic component. Uh, In my opinion, both need to be taken care of to overcome a phobia. The problem is that common approaches to overcoming a phobia tend to focus on thoughts. And for me, a person that's practiced mindfulness since I was 16, I had a really hard time using mindfulness exclusively to keep me calm and work through a phobia trigger. Okay. And so that's why somatic therapy was really helpful to to bring up those traumatic memories from the body memory oh, and see. then to be able to to release and heal those things. Yeah. Um
0: Yeah, hang on, let me just stop for a second. Okay, so you have the A mindfulness idea where you're trying to walk through the process through your mind, but then the somatic component is your body's reaction to that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like when you are panicking about throwing up, it's just not enough to to coach yourself to say, well, you're going to be fine and look at the positive. You're going to face your fear. Like it just doesn't work the amygdala is overpowering the prefrontal cortex of the brain. So, mm-hmm. so the high emotional anxiety is going to override, um, the logical part of your brain, which mm-hmm. is why I think somatic therapy can really help because mm-hmm. it tackles certain parts of the nervous system that unconsciously trigger those fight or flight responses when a phobia okay. is activated. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other issue with talk therapy, which I, I don't want to say it hasn't helped at all, but I would say when it comes to my healing journey, I don't think talk therapy alone had the most effective uh, healing benefits. Mm. And another reason for that is because people with autism don't Always respond well to cognitive behavior therapy. Some Mm. do, some don't. Right. Uh, Some people really like the structure of observing their thoughts, and others uh, just feel like the concept of thoughts impacting behavior is just too abstract for them. Right. Um, And so that's why I I I am a very big advocate of doing somatic therapy or craniosacral. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then the other reason that this is so important is because the vagus nerve plays a very very big role in having those uh, anxiety reactions.
0: Mm-hmm. Not
1: only is it an emotional center, but it plays a very big role in regulating digestion. Mm-hmm. And so, when you're autistic, like the vagus nerve is just heavily overcompensated and and yeah. and just working beyond its capability.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so that's another reason why I think somatic therapy can help because it can it can really um, target that. And it can also, um, build that window of tolerance related to sensory struggles. Mm. Um, you know, because as we've talked about in this episode, and this, in the previous episode, if you're constantly sensory overstimulated, that's, that's more than likely going to escalate the likelihood of, um, having a phobia. For sure. And then there's resilience therapy. So from the perspective of somatic therapy, uh, building resilience. Uh, there's there's a mental component to building resilience, and there's a physiological component of building mm-hmm. resilience. And um, and a lot of people think that if I just suck it up and tough it out and deal with it, it builds resilience. And it mm-hmm. and it rarely works. Even if you are consciously choosing to do that, that doesn't build resilience in your body. Yeah. Um, resilience from the perspective of somatic therapy is about building your window of tolerance and training your body to be regulated during the trigger. Mm. So if if you're constantly dysregulated and you have a very small window of tolerance, exposure therapy just isn't going to do anything, Yeah, in my opinion. Um, so that's why I think, uh, and I talked about this in our previous episode, when it comes to exposure therapy, I think it's important to get other types of therapy first and then do a little bit of exposure therapy, then do another type of therapy, then go sure. back to exposure therapy because you're slowly building your window of tolerance and you're breaking down every minute part of the sensory experience of that mm. trigger and you're, and you're building your power around being able to handle certain aspects of those sensory struggles, even if other parts are overwhelming.
0: Right. As you said, in your metaphor, you're chipping away at it.
1: Yeah, exactly. If you try to tackle it all at once, um, there's, you're just going to have an anxiety reaction. Right. Um, so as I said before, autism struggles and having generalized anxiety disorder, um, they played a very huge role in establishing my phobia. Um, because when you're just constantly anxious, um, and then you have a traumatic experience, your body is just wired to say, I wanna avoid this thing at all costs. Right. Um, So for me, it was really helpful to know how my autism was linked to my fear of vomiting, um, as well as my generalized anxiety disorder. So um, I think what can be really helpful is doing a sensory assessment of your sensory aversions and your Mm. sensory soothers. Remove the sensory aversions associated with vomiting Or create a sensory diet that builds tolerance around your vomiting. Mm -hmm. And also use your sensory soothers as a way to keep you calm during exposure therapy or when you are sick. Mm -hmm. So I've done that. I'm a very um, tactile. uh, I I respond very well to tactile soothers. Mm -hmm. So having a fidget toy, having a weighted blanket that's really soft. um, I, I respond well to things that vibrate in my hand. And having those soothers distracts your body from the panic right. and the physical pain of of whatever you're going through. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's also like helped me build a window of tolerance with um, overcoming my phobia is having an understanding of like, if I do throw up, where do I feel most comfortable doing so? Uh, I don't want to put my head inside a toilet, frankly. Um, Because, because I have issues with the smells and, you know, it's like, why would you put your face in the area where, you know, your feces and your urine are? Um, Mm -hmm. So I've always felt more comfortable, like throwing up in a trash can, sitting in my bed. Uh, I feel more brave overcoming my phobia if I'm at home. And Mm. so, um, you know, my somatic therapist and I have talked about, like, if you are going to face your fear, what kind of choice and autonomy do you have? Um, to be brave. Um, And there are just certain circumstances where, you know, you don't have control and you have to face it. But if you are going to, if you're going to take risks, like for me, I'm very anal about expired food. And, um, you know, I've I've had to be a little brave about um, this might be more than a week old. Am I willing to take the risk to try it? Now, you know, obviously, if there's mold, don't eat it. But like, If you're kind of questioning it, just try it, you know? And and then if you do get sick, have control of the environment where it's mm. like, all right, well, I guess if I if I do experience it, uh, I know that I can take care of myself in a setting that works. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough for autistic people specifically, getting support for the vagus nerve is gonna be a very big part of overcoming emetophobia it impacts both anxiety and digestion. And, um, there was a book that I'm going to recommend later in the podcast that actually really focuses on the vagus nerve and digestion. Okay. And I think that really helped me out. Um, and so, you know, having an understanding of how the vagus nerve works can make a, a really big difference.
0: Okay. So, so then you went into exposure therapy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I I talked extensively about it in last episode, so I'll I'll go into it again this time. Um, I'm not going to say exposure therapy doesn't work, but as I said before, I think that exposure therapy works in tiers. I think that you have to do a lot of inner work before you can um, experience exposure therapy. And and as I said before, physiological resilience is about building a window of tolerance and and being able to regulate independently self-regulate whether that's consciously or unconsciously when you're faced with that trigger you're not going to make progress with exposure therapy if you just sit there and tough it out right it, it just doesn't work
0: uh, yeah i think that's the assumption
1: yeah and and you know some people benefit doing exposure therapy when it when it is with uh a therapist who has a expertise in phobias. And there are other people who just, you know, who can't afford therapy and maybe they just want to sure. guide themselves. And, you know, that's a very personal decision. Um, and I tried exposure therapy. There was a website I found where uh, they tiered it out. So one tier was, how do you feel about the word vomit? Uh, sure. Can you only handle saying the V word? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was like, How do you feel about reading sentences about vomiting? Uh, How do you feel about still images? Um, Then there were images of like people that were, you know, they just looked mildly nauseous. And then it escalated to like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, like the most comically uh, extreme pictures of people throwing up like vomit coming out of their nose and their mouth and their ears. And it's like, oh, my God, like sometimes I look at these photos and I and I just laugh. And then and then it evolves to like animals and cartoons throwing up and videos. And so so it's tiered. And this this website was great. But at the same time, I'd go through the whole thing. And then I didn't really feel like I had overcome my phobia. Um, I felt like I toughed it out and I was glad sure. I toughed it out. Right. But at You're the same time, progress. I was like, I yeah. didn't feel like I was making progress. So that's where, yeah. and, and I talked about this earlier where like even throwing up, having the experience of throwing up doesn't necessarily make you overcome it.
2: Of course So there's not.
1: a lot of inner work that you need to do completely separate. And, and mm-hmm. sometimes you just need to allow yourself, like, especially if you have a child who has a metaphobia, mm-hmm. age can really help, uh, facing that fear. Um, you know, phobias are very complex and a child doesn't always have the cognitive rational deduction to be sure. able to understand um what a phobia is. So mm-hmm. you get that benefit as you get older. And yeah. so I feel like I think exposure therapy helps if you revisit it over time. Right. Um and you know, the other thing I talked about in our last episode is like some people feel like they can overcome their fear By inducing vomiting, like they have control to make Ipecac, which is a it's a chemical that induces vomiting. Sometimes people will put their fingers down their throat to make themselves throw up. Right. Um, I don't feel comfortable with that. I I feel very strongly that my body is a temple and Mm. I I don't want to cause damage to my body in an effort to overcome my fear. Um, Another thing some people do is uh, they'll get blackout drunk so right, that right. like they can throw up from having too much alcohol, which that in itself can create a lot of issues. You certainly Correct. don't want to yeah. have asphyxiation by choking on your vomit while being sure. blackout drunk. And if you survive that, that's going to reinforce your phobia. Right. Um. And and I had shared a story in our previous episode where there was a guy who took Ipecac as a way to overcome his phobia his anxiety about throwing up was so strong that mm. he didn't throw up and Ipecac induces vomiting. Right. And that blew my mind reading it because it's like, that's how damaging a phobia is. And this poor guy is just suffering for hours of like, I feel horrible and I want to throw up, but I'm also having right. a panic attack because I don't want to throw up. and And that's another reason why I just, me personally, I would never force myself to throw up because what if the phobia overrides it? You know what yeah. I mean? Um, yeah. There's a lot of dangers and damage that you can do to your body if you make yourself throw up.
2: Oh, yeah. Um,
1: but some people would rather have that control of creating circumstances where they do get sick versus allowing the flu to occur, which mm-hmm. personally I'm a little more comfortable with. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, exposure therapy is a very personal thing, and I don't think it solves everything. Um, one of the biggest takeaways, however, um, if if I could recommend anything as a first step uh, for anybody who's exploring to overcome emetophobia, buy an emetophobia workbook. Um, okay. At the time that I started my journey, there was really only one workbook, and it was from um, emetophobia.co.uk uh, co.uk, whatever it is. Um,
0: we'll put that in the show notes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a ton of resources for people. Um, but there are a lot more books published now about overcoming emetophobia, um, than there were, um, when I first started my journey. And I think that those workbooks are highly educational. Um, Mm. and they give you a really great perspective about just how emetophobia operates and the more that you can cognitively understand how emetophobia works the Mm -hmm. more empowered you are to make decisions um to heal it rather than being like shooting in the dark sure um so the root cause of having any phobia according to the author of this workbook um are locus of control self-esteem and social anxiety Mm -hmm. um i did talk in greater depth about these issues in our previous episode. But to summarize, people with autism always wanna maintain control. Um, Locus, you have an internal locus of control and an external locus of control. People with phobias have an external locus of control where they're afraid of how their external world is gonna create danger and they wanna control their environment as much as possible to avoid that dangerous thing. Whereas Mm -hmm. the internal locus of control is about building that window of tolerance having the ability to self-regulate, having positive thoughts and mindsets about how to face that fear. So mm-hmm. it's about being able to have self-mastery rather than having mastery over your environment. Okay. Um, self-esteem is about having the confidence within yourself that you have the window of tolerance to overcome this. And and that's why it's really important when you're facing a phobia to chunk out every little part of an experience so with emetophobia as an example there's the food you eat the nausea the external environments that you're in when you feel sick uh what vehicle that you use to throw up into the sen- the variety yeah. of sensory experiences of throwing up mm-hmm. um you know i think what i've learned is usually the nausea uh causes more anxiety for me than the actual purging mm. um and so being able to break those things down and and being able to figure out with any type of therapist, what can I handle? And what can I not handle? Um, and, and you build that, that confidence and that motivation of where you're already starting with strengths and then building upon those strengths and ultimately being able to face your fears in a way that's neurodiverse friendly. Um, and then the last component is social anxiety, which is the fear of doing something Highly embarrassing in front of other people, and you know, sure, being teased, being just, dis- you know, people having a judgmental, disgusted reaction at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very traumatizing for people with autism. Um, yeah, that makes sense. You know, we're always afraid of how people view us, and then doing something like peeing our pants, uh, pooping ourselves, sure. vomiting in public. Um, that feel, that triggers a a very high level of shame for us when we're already dealing with the shame of, you know, stimming in public, having Mm -hmm. meltdowns, you know, a a very big part of having autism is dealing with a lot of uh, physiological experiences that we don't always have control over and people don't respond favorably to. So that, that is a very big core root. Um, And so, you know, People with autism have chronic sensory overwhelm, we have low frustration tolerance, we have social anxiety. Um, I mean, all of these reasons completely reinforce why somebody would have a phobia. So the emetophobia workbook, uh, at least for me, uh, helped me to reflect on those three factors, how they were linked uh, between my autism and, and my emetophobia. And that gave me a lot of power to yeah. go to a therapist and say all right today we're going to tackle the social anxiety component of my phobia today we're going to tackle the locus of control and then another day we're going to tackle self esteem um and and again those things take a lot of time to heal but yeah. at least you have a structure mm-hmm. of how to face those things in a way that doesn't involve making yourself throw up or being around people that throw up yeah so Brett, based on everything that I've shared about this topic, what are your takeaways as it relates to your family or helping other people with autism?
0: Well, I think, you know, finding a therapy that works for you. Uh, One of the big takeaways, I think, for this, um, and it's just not for this particular issue, but I love the idea of doing a sensory assessment uh, for your child when they're younger, because then what that's doing is it's teaching your child, you know, what are the Things that you want to avoid, and then what are the what are the things that soothe you, right? And so having that knowledge is something that you can take with you as an adult. Yeah. Right. So that's that's one thing. Um, the other th- takeaway for me is the idea of journaling. I think that's super important for you to um, understand what the phobia is and the root causes. And then the last thing is um, your statement that there is no one magic therapy, and then there's no there's no set timeline that um this is going to be solved, yeah, right. understand it's it's going to take time. You're going to be chipping away at it. Um, but you know, be patient in the process,
1: yeah. and and I'll add some things we also talked about in our previous episode. Um I like being able to document um all of the steps I've taken mm-hmm. to overcome my phobia. Mm-hmm. And I'll talk about, like, you know, here's what went well. Here's what I struggled with, or if there was an incident that involved vomiting. I would kind of just briefly summarize, here's how I felt, here's what happened, uh, here's what I could have done differently, um, or, you know, what went well. Um, And I think that one of the things that really helped me to overcome it, um, you know, among many other things, is like when I think about as an adult, if I have adults around me that get sick, like anybody, or even like up to the age of like, I don't know, 15. Mm -hmm. um, It's not your responsibility to care for that person. You don't have to be around them. Um, You know, if my husband and, you know, my husband's thrown up uh, in our marriage around me, not. You're on your own, dude. (laughs) Well, but you know, but part of the, uh, the way that I cope with it is like, I don't have to play a role in, in caring for him. He can care right. for himself. Right. Um, or like if I'm at a party, uh, not that this has directly happened to me, but you know, I've had friends where they're at a party and then somebody throws up because they had too much to drink. Sure. You know, if there are multiple people at a party, you somebody don't have to handle be- that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you don't have to be the one to care for them. Um, you know, you make, you can make empowered decisions and, and they don't have to be like, I'm terrified and I'm running away decisions. Right. It's just having the understanding of like, oh, I have sensory struggles mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe I'm not the best fit to care for this person because I, I have many struggles associated with this trigger. So I can opt out and I can have the confidence rather than the fear to mm-hmm. opt out. Right. Um, and I think about it with teaching too. We were talking in our previous episode about, it's not a teacher's responsibility, um, to care for a child who has a phobia. Right. Um, and so not when
0: we have 30 kids in our classroom, well,
1: plus. well, exactly. Um, and I, and I'll say this too, I think oftentimes when kids have phobias, They'll feel abandoned. I remember when I was little. My brother has type one diabetes, and part mm. of having diabetes is you can get ketones
2: mm. and
1: ketones um basically cause your i think it's your blood sugar to spike um mm. but the the long and short of it is the change in your blood sugar causes you to get sick yes. and I remember that um my brother had ketones we were we were going to the airport. We had to, so basically, like we weren't going to miss our flight because my brother was sick. So, <laughs> so, um, he's in the front seat, throwing up into a bucket. He's having panic because yeah. he's not feeling well and right and he, you know, I remember him screaming like, "I need a bucket, I need a bucket!" Yeah, Meanwhile, I'm in the back seat screaming and go. crying because I'm panicking, <laughs> and I remember that all of my parents' attention, it felt like. It was going to my brother. And I remember feeling so abandoned, Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, which
1: again, you know, I'm not villainizing my parents. I, to be honest, as an adult, as, as a teacher, as a a soon to be parent someday, Mm -hmm. who's your priority? Who are you, who are you going to prioritize caring for? Right. Um, Chances are your energy is going to go to the kid that's sick, Um, you know, because the other parent is driving. And right. so it's sort of a it's sort of a circumstantial thing. Sure. But I think it's very hard for kids to, you know, be so dysregulated to be afraid and they just need a parent to assure them you're going to be okay, you know, do you need a hug or something. Sure. And um I think what I would say to that uh to assure any caregiver, it's not your responsibility. Um they're on a certain journey and um I don't want to make this sound like tough love, but it's so important for people with a metaphobia to have their own coping tools. You know, oh, you're, you're going to be in situations beyond your control where your phobia mm-hmm. is going to get triggered. And even if you're afraid, you need to have those skills to regulate yourself because not everybody around you is going to be equipped to help you. Yeah, um, and, and you can develop those skills more confidently as you get older. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very tough thing to have. It, it's tough on the person with the phobia. It's very tough on the caregivers. Um, but ultimately I think the goal is building self-confidence of facing your fear. And, and we also talked about this um, in our previous episode. If I, if I get pregnant and I'm morning sick and I still have the phobia, you know, things might not be perfect, right. but the goal, the, the most basic goal of overcoming a phobia is making sure that the phobia is not compromising your quality of life. You you know, if the phobia is impacting you not being able to eat or not being able to leave your house, that's where it's a problem. But you, you can still engage in the world and be afraid and, and, and cope, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and you're not going to wall yourself up in your house and, you know, Oh, you're not going to leave until you're void of fear. There's always going to be a little bit of fear. There's always going to be a little bit of discomfort. Every type of phobia, everybody has a, a little bit of discomfort with. Right. So you don't need to be perfect in your journey of overcoming it. You just need to take baby steps every single day to have more freedom and autonomy from that phobia impacting your quality of life.
0: Right. That makes absolute sense. All right. We have come to the end of our episode. So today we talked about the fear of vomiting and how that's linked to autism from Nicole's personal experience. And hopefully there are some things that she shared that will help other people with autism in their support to cope with emetophobia as well as other phobias. Now, Nicole, Mm -hmm. you have some um, resources you want to share with us.
1: Yeah. Hands down, the very primary first resource, I think, you were talking earlier about like out of all of the things, what would probably be the most universally beneficial. My advice, go to emetophobia.co.uk. The website is called a free. It is a fantastic resource that I never tapped into, but I did a lot of research on it in preparation for the podcast. And they are the, the resource that provided the emetophobia workbook that I talked about. Mm. Um, it is a, fantastic resource. I cannot recommend it enough Mm -hmm. for the the beginning of the journey. Um, There are plenty of research articles and resources on emetophobia. There's podcasts. There are recovery stories. There's a directory for emetophobia coaches Mm. um, that I believe are international. And there are manuals um, and workbooks for kids, teens, and adults. So obviously, I use the adult version. Yeah. Um, but it is just, I cannot recommend it enough. Definitely start there. Okay. Um, additionally, there are a ton of emetophobia workbooks on Amazon and lots of really great YouTube videos about emetophobia, whether that be from licensed therapists or people who have personal experience with emetophobia. Mm-hmm. When it comes to autistic YouTubers that talk about their experience with emetophobia, um, I've only really found two. Um, there's and Shant Sammons, who... At the time of recording, she she's fairly young. I want to say she was at least early 20s.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And I thought that her video was really great in talking about how her autism and emetophobia, uh, I don't know, fed off each other. And then Mm -hmm. the other one um, is by a YouTuber named Purple Ella. She is an autistic mother. Mm -hmm. And I believe, I don't know if all of her kids are autistic, but she definitely has some kids that are autistic. So the video that she has where she talks about emetophobia, um, she not only talks about her experience dealing with it, but she also talks about how emetophobia impacts her parenting. Purple Ella in general, um, she's a, she's a great YouTuber just about autism as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just loved that she was able to talk about her experience with that connection. And like I said, there's just so few resources that talk about that commonality. So I, I'm very grateful to those two people being very open and transparent about their stories. Yeah. Okay. Um, and lastly, um, I would recommend reading Asperger's Syndrome and Anxiety by Nick Dubin. Nick Dubin is a uh, he has a PhD in psychology and he's on the autism spectrum, mm-hmm. and he he just talks a lot about um, you know how people with autism experience anxiety, which. He doesn't necessarily talk about it in relation to phobias but I do think it can be a great additional resource to have a perspective about how locus of control, self-esteem and social anxiety uh compound to create a phobia. So, yeah, I that yeah. that's kind of, those are good starting places and then I would say from there, you know, based on the other types of therapy that I talked about that worked for me, you do not have to do all of them. Just right, pick the ones that resonate with you and and just start with it.
0: Mm-hmm. Take a
1: baby step and then do it until it doesn't work and then try something else. And, yeah. you know, do it within reason of your financial resources. Of course. You can follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode Subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, et cetera. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. And if you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to see the artwork on this episode. So you know, thank you for turning ha- in.
1: <laughs> you know, I haven't made the artwork. Uh, I mean, as of recording, I haven't made the artwork yet, but yes. I I am very Can't curious wait. about that's how that's so going to That's
0: <laughs> right. All right. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Until then, I'm Brett Thayer.
1: And I'm Nicole Cabellos.